Shout out to Clarity for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples. I've been battling allergies for years now. Let me tell you, they've been a real ordeal in my life. Luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available release sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's up, gang? Welcome to The Greatness Machine. I'm your host, Darius Mershazdeh. I'm so pumped to have you here with me. Now, listen, The Greatness Machine, we're about two things. Number one, people who are living their passions. And number two, those who are creating greatness in the world and doing both of these things despite the odds against them. Each episode, we're going to feature interviews with game changers, business leaders, you know, telling us their origin stories, what made them tick, what got them to where they are now. Why? So it can help you step into your greatness within your life, your business, and your career. Occasionally, you might hear a few solo episodes from myself, moi, as I say, as I leverage my 20 years of entrepreneurship as a CEO and founder to help you grow and level up in your journey to scale your life and your business. So come be a fly on the wall, enjoy the conversation, and I'm stoked to have you here with me. Wow, wow, wow. What a great episode with Rick Sapio. My man, Sapio, I love I love him. He's just one of my, he's like a brother from another mother. We got to talk all about his come up story. His, oh, what a crazy come up story. But how he, his childhood and what happened to him. How he took that to turn it into a life that's driven by core values. And really what he's done as an entrepreneur is just unbelievable. We get to hear about his story with Warren Buffett. How he was got him to go start his first business, and now we and then we really dive into what every entrepreneur needs to learn about, which is how do you exit your company the best way possible. We learn about his new service, the MCA Exit Concierge Service. So, uh, great episode. Stay tuned. Can't wait for you to hear it, guys. Welcome to today's episode of the Greatness Machine. I'm your host Darius Mershazi, and boy, do we have a special guest, my main man. Rick Sapio is in the house. Sapio, what's up, brother? Hey, love to be here, man. Thank you. Oh man, I'm so pumped to have you here. Gosh, Sapio, man. So um, before we get into the show, I want to do a little bit of housekeeping. Listen, so so for the audience that's new to the show, Greatness Machine, we're, we're about two things. We're about people living their passions, and those creating greatness in the world, and doing so despite the odds. And my man Sapio has been living his greatness and living his passions for many, many years, just crushing it in life. Um, it's so good to have you back on the show. So um, for listeners that didn't watch the live, the lives, I, I started doing this about three years ago. And one of the first guests I had was my main man, Sapio. This is back when I used to sing on the show and Sapio sang some, some, was it some old blue eyes? I think we, we, we sing some Sinatra. Is that, is that, is that correct? I, I taught Frank how to sing. That's how old I am. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Um, so, um, yeah, so I know Rick um, from Gathering of Titans, and, and 
better yet, Rick is the founder, like the literally the founder of Gathering Titans, which is the program I talk about all the time on the show uh, at MIT that I got the honor of getting the chair last year. Uh, Rick actually was the person that asked me to to to, to chair that that role, uh, which was which which is a lot of pressure. If you don't know Sapio, which you're going to get to know Sapio a lot better on this episode, Sapio doesn't fuck around. And so, like, if he asks you to do something, you're like, man. I can't let this guy down. He, 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 like I, I got to deliver. And so I'm, I'm a gamer. So I was like, hell yeah, I'll do it. <laughs> then I got nervous. I was like, I was like, um, oh, I can't fuck this up. <laughs> you, you got and, very and I, nervous. I was surprised. You're like, oh, because of the legacy and all that. And I'm like, what do you mean? We already picked you. We trust you. We know you'll deliver. So you, we had a lot more faith in you than you believed. I think. Yeah. I'm, I'm, um, I'm I'm a gamer that gets a little performance anxiety and then goes and just gets after it. So I think I think I think all that shows is that you care, right? That, that that's how I look at it. It's like if you get, if you don't get nervous about something, it means you don't care enough. Um, and so so I, I I felt like I delivered. It was it was a great event last year. But but yeah, so so I met Sapio a few years ago through uh, GOT, um, and we become fast friends, getting to hang out. And, um, and man, I, I'm, I'm so pumped to have you here to talk about all of the greatness you're bringing to the world, Sapio. So welcome to the show. Thank you. So um, I want to give a little bit of your formal, formal bio, for uh, again, for listeners that are not familiar. So uh, Rick Sapio is the president and founder of MCA, which stands for Mutual Capital Alliance. Been, been sitting in that seat for 29 years. Creator of the MCA Exit Concierge Service, uh, transaction specialist with 36 years of experience. We're going to be talking a lot about you know, doing deals and what he's doing in that world today with the MCA Exit Concierge Service, and co-author of Who's in Your Room. I mean, to be honest with you, your 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 accolades and list of cool shit you've done is like a mile long. So I'm gonna spare. If anyone wants to learn more about Sapio, just Google his name, and you're gonna see a lot of cool stuff about him. But um, Sapio, if you don't mind, what I'd love to do is, you know, here at the Greatness Machine, we'd like to talk origin story. I'd love if you could maybe give us a little bit of your origin story, so that so the audience can get to know you a little bit better. Awesome. So um, one aspect of my origin story, which I'd like to share, is I'm the seventh of 10 kids. And when I started having children with my wife, um, uh, I was the last one in my family to have children. And so I want to put this in context. Um, When we started having kids, I was 44 and I had 44 nieces and nephews. So two 44s. And I saw what all my siblings were doing. And I said, I don't want to do that. And what I watched and I see every day is parents are walking around with a pillow just in case their kid falls down. They don't want their butt or their knees to hit the ground. We're bubble wrapping kids. And my origin story is the 100% opposite of being bubble wrapped. And when you hear the story and the conclusion of it, uh, it was pretty crazy. So, uh, when I was a baby, my uh, I was seventh of ten, and my four-year-old brother. Think about a four-year-old in your house. I know it wasn't too long ago where you had a four-year-old, Darius, but you know he was the beaming, bright star of the family. And uh, unfortunately, he died, and he died because he got uh, leukemia, and it was quick. Uh, and my mother, I mean, think about a mom and a baby. She had a nervous breakdown, and she never recovered. So I grew up in a family uh, without having a relationship with my mom. She was just distant and in and out of mental institutions and all that kind of stuff. Um, 
she was alive. She lived to be 80 years old, but she was just, you know, it was very, very tough for me my whole life to just have a mom like that. And I still loved her. But the real negative was when I was 11, my dad comes home from work. He was a, he was a small time entrepreneur and uh, he comes home to, to the dinner table and he announces to the family that, you know, you guys know I've had a backache for like two years. I finally went to the doctor and it turned out that uh, he had fourth uh, stage four cancer and they gave him six weeks to live because it had already spread to his lungs and his brain and uh, everywhere. So now you take a, an unstable family situation and you um, and then that happens. Well, my dad said, and this is why the origin story is so cool. My dad said, you know, I've got to teach you guys how to be independent. Basically, he ended up living two and a half years. And after he died, when I was 13, you know, I'm, I'm a mile, uh, very close to New York City. And in those those days, I was uh, this is uh, he got sick in 1975 and died at the end of 77. Uh, he, you have to imagine the world, the, 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 the drugs, the, um, the, the gangs, the craziness of New York city in those days, it wasn't like New York city today. And yet 45 years later, all of my siblings are married, 300 plus years of marriage, zero divorces. So wow. that's why I wanted to, wanted to set up the context of that. Like you would think that we would have crazy lives. But the reality is that situation taught us independence. And that's the, the, the secret to that. So one thing that I, uh, which is why I'm on the show with you now, Darius, is I, at the age of 11, when my dad got sick, I realized I can either join the gangs that my friends are in, or I can make something of myself. And I found mentors. And one of my mentors when I was 11 said, Rick, if you get an engineering degree, because I heard you're good at math, uh, it'll train you how to think. You can be a doctor, a lawyer, you can work on Wall Street, you could be a business person. And so anytime somebody asks me after the age of 11, what do you want to be with your life? I'm like, I don't know, but I'm going to get an engineering degree. And it gave me hope and it gave me direction. And the engineering degree that I got, which there was nobody stopping me from doing that. I went to Rutgers. Uh, it helped me make sense out of a chaotic childhood. One yeah. plus one equals two. Inputs equal outputs. And so it was really like this amazing um, aha for me that I could actually, number one, make something happen. Number two, have male uh, mentors. And my whole life is littered with, uh, not littered, that's probably not the full, I should say, packed full of uh, mentors, primarily older male mentors. My favorite one, I've, he's been my mentor for 30 years, is 84 years old now. And so uh, I guess people say, well, you made lemonade out of lemons. And the reality is all of us have lemons in our life. And you know, to me, an entrepreneur is anyone who decides to take responsibility for outcomes, no matter where the starting point is. So yeah. That's the origin story that you asked for. Um, and, you know, I think about it every day, how blessed I am to have a mom that I had, to have a dad that I have, and to, you know, uh, have siblings that I have. I, I don't know another way to say it, because we're all yeah. uh, independent. And so my kids, I tell them every day, my goal as a dad, my kids are 9, 11, 12, and, and 14, 9, 11, 13, and 15, sorry. 
And I tell them every day, my goal is to raise 18-year-olds that are independent, entrepreneurial, God-fearing, and hardworking. That's it. And so my my 14-year-old at the time was now 15, said, Dad, if that's what you want, I want to go away to high school. And I'm like, your mother's going to kill me if you go to high school in another state. Why do you want to do that? And he goes, because you told me my whole life that you want to be independent, entrepreneurial, hardworking, God-fearing. And here he is in a, in a high school in Kansas on a farm with no screens and no phones. So wow. I see him. I, I didn't talk to him for two and a half months. High school, wow. freshman year. Is, it, is this like a, like a boarding school that specializes in like, like, like what kind of school is this? <laughs> it's the guy who said, a guy, the guy who founded it, Dan, said, we need schools that create men and women. And he said, look, everything, look at what's wrong with the world. Everyone's addicted to electronics, 10 hours a day for kids. So my son, uh, because if you've ever been there, I, I want you to come to my house for dinner, but we don't have any screens in our home. And my kids are like, I don't want to go to normal schools where everybody's looking down. I want to be out in the wilderness. And so in this school, they grow their own food. They kill animals to eat. Um, they, uh, in order to graduate, you have to build a boat and uh, sail at 50 miles to the Mississippi River, like all kinds of really cool stuff that humans met, were meant to do before the Industrial Revolution. So anyway, I'm going down a, a path, but the reality is one of my values, which I know you and I love to talk about, is uh, probability. And probability means there is that everything you do or I do in our families or our businesses should increase the probability of hitting the stated outcome. And so often in life, we make business decisions or family decisions that go against the stated outcome. So for my wife and I, because we want to raise independent, entrepreneurial, God-fearing, hardworking 18-year-olds, we're willing to say yes to high-probability decisions. And that one lesson I have to be reminded of every day, uh, probability. I use probability because, I mean, shit, who has time these days? You want to make high-probability decisions, don't you? Definitely, man. I love that. And, 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 and man, you're, you're the way you think about things. It's, it's so, it's really interesting to, to know that that comes from, I mean, this engineering background, which makes a lot of sense now. So, um, and I love the story about your son. I actually want to hear more about it probably when we go offline because I'm just for my own kids. That's, that's kind of a cool, that's kind of a cool opportunity to, 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 take people into what's more important. I was at, uh, my son, my oldest son is in a performing arts school here in Austin and he, they just did a musical and we're, my wife and I put on the after party and, and there's, and it ended up because it was rainy. We were going to do it in our backyard it was raining. So we do it inside the school and we're in the cafeteria and there was a kid there and I'm watching him and now there's 50 kids. They're, they're celebrating the end of their musical and they just put, did this great thing and they're all hanging out and there's a kid sitting there watching TV on his phone in the middle of this party. And I, I was like flabbergasted. I'm like, I'm like, dude, you're a kid. You're in the middle of a party. What do you, why are you by yourself looking at a fucking phone? Right. <laughs> and I told my wife, I said, I'm taking, my, my kid has a cell phone, which I've, I begrudgingly gave him one, and now I'm like, I'm taking it away. I'm over this. Like, I'm like, at the NBA Finals. LeBron James was playing several years ago. I'm at the last game, seventh game, and the crowd, I'm like hitting people in the back of the head. I'm not exaggerating, Darius. 90% of the people were looking down at their phone in the fourth quarter, sitting at an NBA game live. 
like what is going on with the world this is insane and so that's why i've just sworn it off uh my favorite story uh, i love this story is um uh one of the most famous and prolific inventors in the history of the world dean Kamen, the guy who invented the Segway and over a thousand other things he was in a meeting uh, uh, he's going to call me one of these days because I love sharing this story. He's in a meeting, uh, a board meeting, and this uh, Madonna, you know, the singer Madonna, had done, done something. It wasn't too long ago. And the whole group was talking, did you hear what Madonna did? And so he let the conversation go before he started the meeting. And we were talking for like 10 minutes. And he goes, time out, time out, time out. Who the hell is Madonna? <laughs> and I love that story because here's a guy these days that's so intent on his purpose and on his values, he doesn't give a shit about pop culture and all this crap that's dragging our society down. I love that, man. <laughs> He's like, huh? <laughs> Who's? I'm like, she's been popular for 35 years, dude. <laughs> it's awesome, though. Think about it. And I'm kind of like yeah. that because I never had a TV. Yeah, no, that's great. So how did you, um, you know, you get out of school you know, how did you, what did you do to kind of set, take that and using the word segue, how did you segue that into this world of becoming an entrepreneur, um, in, you know, with MCA and, and the business you're doing now, I know you've, it's a long-term holding company you built many, many years ago that you've, it's really been a, a lifetime business for you, but to, yeah. to kind of tell us a little bit about the entrepreneurial journey. I'd love to hear about that. Well, if you want something bad enough, the universe will conspire to give it to you. And um, what happened to me is I graduated college. I was a five-year engineer. I graduated at the age of 23. And fortunately, at the time, 1987, Wall Street was hiring engineers. So uh, I got lucky, uh, really. And I got lucky because I worked for a firm in which one of the guys said, uh, who I asked a lot of questions to, if you recall, I said, I, I love mentors. And he said, hey, why don't you do some sales on my team? And he was an analyst that uh, bought the debt of public companies that were bankrupt. And every time I opened an account in those days, somebody in the company would say, uh, I already have that account. Like, so what would happen is because they had met with so many wealthy people in the tri-state New York area, if that they would keep a database. And so if they had breakfast with somebody 12 years ago, that would be their account. You follow what I mean? So right. literally, right. I was wasting time opening accounts with people that were, quote unquote, one of the old guys in the office. And I'm the young buck, right? So I said, this is ridiculous. I'm going to go to the Midwest. So I started going to Chicago. And um, I never went further than uh, Kansas, but in that area. And I read an article one day in Forbes magazine about this young, uh, he wasn't that young, uh, wealthy guy. So I go to his office. I meet him. And uh, we hit it off. He actually did a trade because our uh, the way that we traded, and I, again, I was using entrepreneurial precision in finance, which people weren't doing. And in those days, I remember when they would put a book together on a new deal, I'd read the book, you know, the, the analyst book, and say, okay, what are we doing here? And the guys would go, how'd you read it that fast? Well, my brain was used to reading graphs and charts and all that. Anyway, I meet this guy in Omaha, Nebraska, I come back to New York with the account paperwork, and I'm certain, because the guy had a small article in the Forbes magazine in the late 80s, that somebody knew him. And so I'm like, I know one of you guys has Warren Buffett as a client. I remember this guy, Dan, in the office. He started laughing. He goes, <laughs> who the hell's Warren Buffett? And so no. 
I ended up specializing in wealthy people from the Midwest. What's funny about Buffett is uh, nobody knew who he was until 1992, if you recall, when Solomon Brothers went bankrupt and he emerged as the biggest shareholder. Then everybody knew him. And uh, but prior to that, nobody knew him. And he gave me a lot of confidence. Uh, he is the, the reason why at the age of 29, I just start, decided to start a holding company. He also is the reason why I picked what I think is the best building in the world. He said, I've been in the same office for 40 years. So pick an office that you can that you can die in because why have that decision moving offices and all that? So uh, as I talk to you now, I've been in, in this office for 29 years and four months. And I just re-signed my lease, which ends uh, at 42 years. But this office has a hotel, a medical facility, 15 restaurants, a dentist, a dry cleaner, a haircutter, everything I need. So it's cool. And uh, so you may be hearing it. And I know you love talking about values. And I think everybody listening, if you have not stopped your life, shut every electronic device off, and written down the values that are part of your DNA, meaning we're all born with a set of values that resonate with us, then how the hell do you know if the next person or project that comes into your life is going to destroy your life or enhance your life? Like you need some decision-making lens. So mine is obviously, as you can hear, my voice is simplicity. And my son once said, Daddy, why is simplicity more important to you than family? And I said, because if I didn't have simplicity as a value, I couldn't have dinner with you seven nights a week. I couldn't take the Tuesday night after dinner and take one of my kids out and we do something interesting on Tuesdays. And we have all these family rituals that are born out of simplicity. So I I know I'm combining a lot of things and I know you got a question, but I wouldn't encourage everybody, write your values down, write what they mean to you and use them as a decision-making lens. Yeah. Because every problem that Darius has ever had, every problem Rick has ever had, every problem you have ever had, if you're listening, is caused because you let someone or something into your life that did not align with your values. And your gut is screaming, don't do it. And you go, no, but I'm going to make so much money. And gut is G-U-T, God uttering truth. Listen to it. <laughs> so <laughs> I love that. I've never heard that. I've never heard that before. Um, so... Yeah, that's something we majorly have in common, which is this this belief around leveraging values as a decision making tool for everything. Right? It, it becomes really once I think you get really clear on that on what your values are, everything else becomes easy. Because it, it, to your point, I'm either making a decision that aligns or, or doesn't to those value set, and you know it. Your body tells you. You're like, I'm making this is not aligned to who I am. You know, the the you and I can't remember that. I, I got to get the statistic. But there's your subconscious, I guess, is inundated with uh, I, uh, tens of thousands of more data points than your conscious mind is. And what I find is that's when your body talks to you, right? Your body's like, nope, don't do that. And you, to your point, gut decisions, this thing that doesn't feel right. I'm like, that's just your body. That's a value conflict that your body's saying no to. And you're, you know, you're, and you're nailing it, but your body really, your gut only says yes or no. Your brain rationalizes a thousand things. Totally, right? And 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 it's that, that frontal cortex trying to talk you into it, right? Whereas 
the guts like I don't have a capacity for language. That's a no. And I read something really interesting recently, which is the heart and the gut both have um, actual like decision making like, like cells in them, right? That you have literally parts of the brain that you have like these cells in your brain that you use for decision making. You have them in your gut and your stomach and your heart. Right. And so like, don't just think that this is some weird thing that, that no, this is your, this is a decision-making tool. That's part of who you are. So I, I don't ignore that stuff. I find it, it's funny though, because greed or envy or these, these low resonating, you know, feelings, they really live in that monkey brain. Whereas what's deep, those higher, the God part of this, where it's saying, no, you're here to do this, go live that, that truth. That's where I, I believe that comes from these deeper parts of us in our heart and in our stomach or gut, as, as you're saying. I'm going to take it to another level just very quickly. I want to tell this story. I believe in my heart of hearts that every time a child is born, and this is an old Vedic thing where they say, not that it's true, but think about it as if it were. Uh, when a baby's born, a star is lit up somewhere in the universe, imprinted with that baby's purpose and values. And as Mark Twain said, Two most important days in a person's life is the day they're born and the day they find out why. Well, here's the point of that. Every single person listening has a purpose and a set of values that are resonant to them. Why don't we stop life and say, from now on, this is my purpose, because this is my God-given purpose, my, div- my divine purpose, and these are my values. Hey, Darius, it makes life so much easier. And I've been on purpose and aligned with my values for almost three decades and I just feel so uh, clear. And don't you want that clarity? You know, if you're listening to this, why wouldn't you want to stop the insanity and say, you know what? I'm going to commit to this purpose statement because it's, it's who I am and it's not out there. A purpose is like something you peel the onion on and get inside. I got it. And it's like marrying somebody. You make a commitment at, and all 7 billion other people in the world are no longer available to you. <laughs> Well, the purpose is the same thing. And so are values. You pick it, you write it down, and that's it. Yeah, man. I love it. So let me ask you a question on, on that. Um, and you were kind of talking about, you know, the family values of simplicity, probability, leverage, family, and permanence. Um, th- these are your values and your family's values or just your values? So these I mean, obviously- are mine, but we, we uh, I don't know if they can see. My wife and I... I was nervous when she got pregnant because everybody, uh, every male died at 49. Well, I was 44. And so my wife and I decided, well, in the event Rick dies, uh, we're going to put everything on the family placemat, which I'm holding up here. And so on this placemat are, uh, you know, what we say and what we do at family meetings. Our wedding vows are here because a solid marriage makes kids more confident growing up. What are are our, uh, our family values? All kinds of stuff. There's 35 positive information. But so my personal values that go both family and business are simplicity, probability, leverage, and permanence. Simplicity means keeping things as simple as possible. I mentioned that. Probability, I mentioned that. Leverage is this. Our lives are crazy busy these days. You want to leverage existing relationships, existing strategies, existing businesses, existing assets, whether it's IP or whatnot, existing talents. So many people try businesses and things that aren't leveraged from an existing point of view. It's crazy. And then permanence is the coolest one. Permanence is, I had, I had the opportunity to meet and spend a lot of time with 44 billionaires. But one of them uh, said to me, 
you know, we spent four years creating our business plan. When I die, it's probably going to go to shit. But we spent four years creating a business plan because we wanted it to be permanent. And then for 30 years, it ran permanently. It's called Southwest Airlines. And the guy I'm talking about is Herb Kelleher. And when you put permanence in place, like God didn't say we're going to meet Sunday this week and Tuesday next week and Thursday. No, permanent Sunday is the day of rest. So my wife and I, the first time we went out to dinner, uh, our first date was a Monday night. I looked around the restaurant. It was 730. The place was empty. And they said, hey, you want to go out to dinner next Monday? She goes, sure. Why Monday? I go, well, it's kind of cool. You get service. It's empty. There's no crowd. So we haven't missed a Monday night date night in 20 years. Permanent. So I call this liberating structures in your business and personal life. So you now understand what permanence is as a value. And I think, you know, my schedule weekly is permanent. I know when I'm working out. I know when I'm eating. I know when I'm having certain meetings. I know when I am uh, working late. Because Wednesday nights, I typically tell clients, I'll meet you for dinner or whatever. So this, to me, all these values work together to create this virtuous cycle. And they reinforce each other. Now, uh, I think I got into them enough for you to see how they work together. Well, it all feeds my purpose, which is why I accepted this conversation with you, Darius. I love you like a brother. But I have to map it against, you know, does this fit my va- my values and my purpose? And my purpose is to inspire entrepreneurship. And to me, as I mentioned, an entrepreneur is someone who takes responsibility for outcomes. So long story short, yes, this fully aligns with my purpose and my values. And let's go, baby. Shout out to Clarity for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples. Hey there, friends. It's Darius Mishazda here, and I have a little confession to make. You see, I've been battling allergies for years now. And let me tell you. They've been a real ordeal in my life. Allergies have been my constant companion. They stop me from fully enjoying the little things in life, canceling plans with friends because of sudden allergy attack to missing out on an outdoor activity because of sneezing fits. Allergies have been a real nuisance. Luckily, for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing and a runny nose itchy, watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. I've been a Claritin D user for many, many years now, and let me tell you, it's made a world of difference. Since I started using Claritin D, my symptoms have improved dramatically. Now, I can breathe easier, enjoy outdoor activities without worrying about sneezing fits, and truly live my life without being held back by allergies. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter now. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear, uses directed. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. In the world of successful partnerships, names like Procter & Gamble, Ben & Jerry, and Supply and Demand echo through business history. But when it comes to growing your business, who are the perfect partners? That's you and Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. We're talking from launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the, did we hit a million dollar order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling shipping supplies or promoting productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. 
from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Picture this, a time when my business was facing a tough hurdle and I wasn't sure how to break through. But then came the breakthrough moment, a game changer that took my business to the next level. You know, what I absolutely adore about Shopify is its unparalleled ability to adapt and grow with your ambitions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 75 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Darius, all lowercase. That's D-A-R-I-U-S. Go to shopify.com slash Darius now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Darius. I love it. So with your with the kids, and this is, this is me selfishly, people always ask me, they're like, I mean, they're always surprised by how much of the, how much I love doing the show. And I said, look, half the reason I like doing the show, maybe 80% of the reason I like doing the show is that I just get to learn from amazing folks like yourself. And I mean, we're friends, but you know, like I don't get to spend as much time with you as I would like. So this is a, an hour that I get to spend with someone who I highly respect. So one of my questions for you on this, which is something I've been pondering is with the kids, when do you help them build their values? Because their values, there's family values, but theirs might be a little bit different. Um, they might value, you know, they're a different human, a different soul. To your point the, with the Mark Twain quote, the day you're born, the day you find out your purpose. And, and, and I'm assuming values are part of that. What, how, do you, how do you think about that with, with the kids, with the family? The only thing I've done with the kids uh, is I believe that every human being has a primary value. Mine is simplicity. And my kids each have a primary value that we have identified. We haven't gone further, but my 14 year old, uh, about three years ago, uh, we were at Barrett's event in Florida. It's a great family. He calls it the family gathering of Titans. And there was a speaker there uh, and I kind of fed him a little bit. And he's like, he went up to each one of my kids. I couldn't believe he's like, what's your, what's your primary value? And my, my son, he was 11 or 12 at the time. He goes, perseverance. And the guy goes, perseverance, how is that a primary value? And he goes, well, I've been studying the piano for eight years. I didn't quit. I've been studying karate for seven years. I don't quit. And he's like, I don't quit no matter how tough life gets. So uh, each one of my kids has a primary value. And I don't know if I love perseverance as his primary value, but when you meet him, he's the kid that's like, I don't care what my friends are doing. I'm going to live on a farm and build boats and hang out, you know, eight hours from my family and see him every three months. That's perseverance. So that's cool. So I guess I would say to you in answer to the question in the audience, start with a primary value because that's yeah. going to, when they say the word, you're going to go, yeah, that's yours. Um, I love it. Yeah. That's, that's really cool. I'm, I'm going to do that with my kids this weekend. Um, so I want to, I want to circle back, um, to the business. So, so you meet Warren Buffett and you start, you know, hammering the Midwest, 
But at this point, you're not an entrepreneur. You're working for another firm. Is that is that correct? Or was it entrepreneurism within a company? How, how did that work? How did the Mutual Capital Alliance come? Yeah, so I don't think I've ever had an official job in my life because I had read an article about Oprah Winfrey, believe it or not. When she got her first job, she said, pay my, my company, don't pay me directly. So I've always been a 1099 employee, even when I was young. Uh, so I, I've been an entrepreneur since I started a bicycle shop when I was 13. Uh, but anyway, let me, I think I know where you're going with the question. So, uh, I decided, uh, around 27 that I really, I want to start my own business and not work underneath uh, a mothership. And I just kept asking mentors and Buffett said, why don't you start a holding company and I'll be your first investor. And so I sold out of my, uh, shares in this company. I had a lot of shares. I sold them at a massive discount. It was 1994, actually it was 93. But the beginning in 94, there was a massive bond. Uh, the, the bond market went south big time. And Buffett uh, didn't invest in my company after I had resigned, which that's a whole nother story, which I don't <laughs> want to get into. I don't know how many people <laughs> are listening to this. But uh, I ended up raising $15 million uh, from people that I had made a lot of money for. And wow. $15 million when you're 30 in 1994 to say that that was hard, it was hard to do that. I just was like morning, noon, and night meeting with people and begging them for money. And so I've only had one job since, and that is uh, growing a holding company, which has made uh, over 130 investments, not including all the investments in the many funds that we've launched. But what happened as a result of that, of being um, involved in hundreds of transactions, literally, over a 36 year career is we saw over and over and over and over again, every time it came to an exit, every time, not 99%, but a hundred percent of the time, the management team of the company that we invested in went from running the business, hitting KPIs, you know, most management teams are busy to now, Oh, we got to sell the business. So we found that they were taking months, and most of the time, even more than a year, interviewing investment banks, interviewing M&A lawyers, interviewing quality of earnings accountants, losing focus on the business. And Darius, I know you've been there. Exits are horrible, horrible things. So we hmm. decided to uh, create intellectual property and precision around the exit process. We call it exit process management. And we manage the exit on behalf of private companies and because we use really good vendors over and over, the vendors lower their prices dramatically to work with this process. And what does the process do? It ensures precision around the exit. So you, you end up with a higher exit valuation, a lot less stress, lower vendor costs, and there is accountability through the whole process. So works for private equity, family offices, really any private company that wants to sell using a process. So... With, 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 with mutual capital, um, you guys, um, when you started that, when you raised the 15 mil, and I want to come back to, the, to what you're doing with the concierge service in just a second here, when you raised the 15 million, was it like, Hey, we're going to go do a bunch of, cause obviously your business at that point had been buying distressed debt, um, at, at the previous, in the, in the previous venture, was it kind of the same business model or like, how did you, or what did you, when, when you went to Buffett and you went to these different investors that you had made all this money for, 
What was the pitch to them around the holding company? It was really crazy. When I go back and look at the original documents, it was that we were going to find uh, private companies to invest in that we can grow, potentially take public, or just sell. And it, the only reason people invested, the only reason was because I was full of so much piss and vinegar. They're like, I want to bet on this guy. And the truth is, nobody wrote that big of a check. I think the biggest check was 250000 But these were people that I had made millions for. Because we were, uh, if you recall the times, in the late 80s and early 90s, a lot of public companies uh, were, were uh, over leveraged with uh, junk bonds. And right. the junk bonds went down in value when they went bankrupt, sometimes two, three, four, five cents on the dollar. So we were buying debt at five cents on the dollar and taking those companies through bankruptcy. And they were getting sometimes 30, 40, 50, 100 cents on the dollar. So these investors, um, if I were being completely transparent and honest, they were like, here's 250. Get the hell out of my office, kid. You know what I mean? <laughs> they're, they're like, this guy's made me some money. I don't want to, he's just going to keep bugging me. You know, I'm betting on the pony. We'll see what happens. Yeah. And how they do, how, how, how did those, uh, how have they done on those investments? Would you say? Well, most of them are gone because we, we bought some out early, but I think they've done well because they, um, you know, uh, we've had several rounds after that. So it's hard to imagine the original investors. I can't, it's hard to imagine how they did, you know, percentages per year. But sure, the point I'm getting at in the story is we did not have a clear business plan at all. But what happened is uh, in the early 90s, uh, actually it would be the mid 90s after we started, I met a partner who said, let's start mutual capital private equity funds. And so uh, we moved very quickly into private equity. And so we've been in the business really of launching various funds over the years um, I believe, and don't hold me to this, I believe we've, we've uh, launched over 20 different funds. Um, and so what we saw when you've launched 20 different funds is a lot of transactions, a lot of chaos in transactions. And there's something called transaction drag. And you just see it over and over and over and over again, which is a private company gets set up to sell and ownership and all the vendors and employees are like, oh, when are we going to sell? And everybody gets so focused on the transaction that they just lose focus on running the damn business. And so the, the, what I want to do with the rest of my life there is like, there's no question about it till the day I die. All I want to do is help private companies get to liquidity using our process because I have never seen anything like it. We are not an investment bank. We sit on the management team side and just like a general contractor builds a house, they hire subcontractors that they've worked with before and that they trust. We hire subcontractors to the deal, the investment bank, the quality of earnings, the M&A lawyer, and if you need your own lawyer, and we hire people as a team. So you get a team approach to your transaction because what happens, and you've seen it too, lawyer gets involved, well, lawyers get paid by the hour. And they want to create chaos because they make more money. And so I've seen so many transactions get screwed up. And I said, there's got to be a better way. So we work with lawyers on fixed flat fees. And that changes a lot too. So there's a lot of secret sauce like that involved in the process. And the, the good thing is I'm on purpose. I'm aligned with my values. My team's aligned with the values. 
we all want the same thing for the client, which is a successful exit. And so, you know, it, it, it allows me to have fun. I love that, man. What do you think? Let, let me ask you a question because uh, we have a mutual friend, Rich Manders, who talks about his process called the Sparkle Process, which is kind of like getting companies ready for exit. And have you ever heard, have you ever talked to you about Sparkle Process before? It's funny. I just talked to Rich last week on a deal, but I have never once heard him mention Sparkle Process. Oh, you should. So, so this is, uh, so I'm going to take, I'm going to tell a quick side story because this is two mutual friends of ours. So I got invited, um, John Ratliff did this thing at Harvard a few years ago around like perfecting your exit and what, and, and I knew John, but I, this is before I joined GOT and, and one of his speakers was a guy named Rich Manders, who I did not know because I was not in GOT. And he talked about this whole thing called sparkle, which is his process to help companies maximize exit. But the reason I bring it up was one of the things he said was that a lot of buy side, excuse, uh, yeah, buy side private equity, they bring you into the deal knowing that they're going to drag you through the process and fuck you on valuation at the end. Like literally he's like, there's a playbook for this. 100%. And so I, I, I wanted to get your thoughts on this. Cause I, cause I, the minute I heard him say that, I, 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 I mean, I think people have had a lot of bad experience with private equity. I mean, I've had bad experience with private equity where like they bait and switch you at the end. So I kind of walk in there expecting to get screwed and, and naturally have done some of the things you're talking about. So I don't get distracted in the deals, but I see tons and tons and tons of entrepreneurs get distracted in their deals. What, what are your thoughts regarding buy side private equity and, and how, and how are you using your guys process through the exit concierge service to, to really counteract that? Yeah. So first of all, every, every person involved in an exit is incented to drag it on. The buyer's incented because they get a better valuation. The vendors are incented because they make more money. And they're distracted too. You know, investment bankers, uh, if, you, if you're a private company and you approach an investment bank, they're going to sell you once. So you're a one-time client. There are buyers, private equity mm -hmm. or Bain or Accenture, they, they're going to buy multiple times. So who do you think they're more loyal to? Totally. So how we mitigate all of that is, number one, we hire... A team of vendors, as I mentioned, that work as a team, and they all lower their fees. They lower their fees because they want volume from us. And uh, investment banks have to kiss a lot of frogs to find one Darius. So what we do is we assign it to the bank so they don't have to meet 50 people. They just We just assign it to them. So they're like, oh, great. So we'll lower our fee by this amount. So that's one thing. Number two, we will not hire a bank unless they agree in writing contractually with our process to talk to 200 buyers mm. so yeah that completely changes the game if you're because what happens with private equity is they lock onto a private company drag them through the mud well if you had 200 potential buyers that you're talking to that that completely demasculates if that's the right word the private equity firm from doing their thing we i just say next and so what happens is, in, in general, if you talk to 200 buyers, you generally get seven to 10 LOIs. And if one falls out or is an asshole, we just say next. And so what really breaks my heart, I want to cry, this happens about three times a week. I'll talk to a seller of a business and they'll, they'll say, what, we, what do we need you for? We just got called by private equity. I'm like, the last thing a private company should ever do is talk to a potential buyer. 
think about when you're selling your home. If you went to your real estate agent and said, oh, I'll just talk to the buyers myself, they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. A seller should never talk to a buyer. That yeah. is lesson number one. You know what the seller should do? I recently sold a company, somebody that you know. I don't want to say it on the recording. And I said, do not talk to the buyer. But why? We're friends. I said, tell the buyer, I can't talk to you. I'm too busy running my business. That's the only thing a buyer should hear from a seller 100% of the time. Oh, you want to buy me? I'm too busy running my business. Click. Hang up the damn phone. That, <laughs> seriously, there. that creates more value than anything else. And then hire somebody to represent you that you trust and have that person, whether it's me or somebody else, call the buyer and say, guess what, buyer? I'm starting an auction. And they go, whoa, 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 whoa. Why do you have to start an auction? Because I don't trust you. And if the seller is too busy running their company and the buyer is shut out, that's how you get interest. So against human nature, but that's how it works. And I've been using that tactic for over 30 years. What do you, what do you, what is your thought regarding, and maybe this is part of the answer you just gave, like a strategic buyer versus a financial buyer at running them through your process? Cause, cause obviously like, $2 may not be the same dollar if, if, if I'm getting, if I'm selling 70% of my company to a buyer, that's a strategic versus financial. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Well, financial buyers, well, first of all, let's just zoom out for a moment. A strategic buyer, if they buy your company, just know it's going to be a longer process. It's going to be more drawn out and you're going to be assimilated in, into their culture. If, if we can create an auction of financial buyers, and you have them bidding against each other, you're going to get a strategic price. But if it's a platform play to a family office or private equity, you're going to keep your company intact. And I've seen so many strategic buyers just dismantle companies. It doesn't happen all the time. So it, in, here's what happened the last... So if you go back to 2008, from 2008 to 2021, we'll say, this whole new world emerged for us. We never dealt with private equity or family offices ever. Um, and then this whole world emerged seven, eight years ago where just all this wealth was created uh, in the post-2008 recession that family offices started popping up and private equity started popping up. And now, today, it's so much easier to deal with private equity buyers when you're creating an auction because they honor deadlines. And they're a hell of a lot easier to work with because they have staffs that do that. Well, strategics... You're in the middle of a transaction and Bob takes a job in another company and you're like, oh, shit. So from my perspective, all things being equal, it's much easier to have a really wide process talking to 200 buyers, both strategic and financial, and just have them bid against each other and have them bid on your terms. What happens too often in buyers approaching sellers is you're getting smacked around for two years by this buyer, not realizing that you could have created a formal auction with your rules. And, you know, we, we send out a bid letter and we're like, look, if you want to buy this company, here's the rules. Boom, 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 boom. If you don't want to play with the rules, fine. So there's a lot to it. And it probably should be another call. I'm looking at the clock and I know we're, we're uh, getting yeah, no toward the end, but guys, there's so many nuances to doing a, a private transaction i.e. selling your company. And I just think people do not take it seriously. At lunch with a guy two months ago and he goes, hey, I got offered $120 million by a public company. And I'm like, 
do you realize the shit storm you're about to get into? He goes, what do you mean? I got an attorney. I said, who's the attorney? He goes, well, it's my brother. I'm like, <laughs> oh. And it just, no. people just have no awareness of just how in, excruciating private transactions are. And you've got to add systems, processes, IP, and predictability to it. So, so when um, a folks sign up with, let's say I'm a company, I, I want you to help me with my exit. At what point do you come in as the exit concierge? And you had mentioned that you become part of like the management team. So I'm assuming this is long before, like, ideally it's long before exit. Well, t- tell me, or is it, is we, it at the point of, of exit? When, when do you guys come in? Yeah, I get the question. So once people make the decision, we don't do any preparation. We manage the exit process on the side of the table as the management team. So think about it. You've got your CFO, your CEO, your CMO, whatever. Well, look at us as this is the executive in charge of hiring the vendors for the for the exit. So we would evaluate all the investment banks that fit, pick one. Obviously, the company would sign off on it. We would evaluate quality of earnings. We love using Baker Tilly because Baker Tilly's got a great quality of earnings department. Uh, we would use an M&A attorney that would agree to a massive discount uh, because the M&A attorneys want business and they hate kissing a lot of frogs to get one. So they're willing when they work with us to lower their fees dramatically. So we would be the executive on the team that manages the hiring of the vendors and having them work together. And then we use weekly process management to manage these vendors from beginning to end. So are you, that this is where your like engineering comes in, just creating that, that consistent process. I love it, man. Um, do you mind? And I don't know if you're open to talking about this, but like, what does a fee structure look like for someone working with you guys versus, you know, going and doing this with, through a traditional investment maker? I'll use my own examples. Uh, you know, my business, I hired a JMP securities for one transaction. I hired Hulahan Loki for another transaction and, and, um, there were different types of transactions, but we had them. And then we had the attorney that charged 1400 bucks an hour for us to, to manage our M&A process. And we had, you know, um, gosh, I'm blanking on who we hired, but if I said it, you, you would know them. They're a massive, uh, CPA firm to manage quality of earnings. So we've had all, you know, I think we use actually KPMG for one of our transactions. So I remember looking at our deals and our deals were pretty big. They're kind of like along the the size of what you're talking about. I was like, this is a lot of money. Like I I remember the the, the investment makers said our minimum, I called up one of my my buddies at JMP who's a partner there now. And I said, Hey, I'm, I'm thinking about raising some money to go do some deals what's your, can you guys help me? He said, well, dairy, it's my minimum deal size is a million bucks. And I was like, ah, a million bucks. It means I got to do minimum 50 million for me to do a deal with you to even like start talking to you. And that's at 2%, right? So I'd love to hear your thoughts on fees and how you guys think about that. First of all, first of all, a private company should never talk directly to an investment bank ever because they just get you into their crosshairs and you you just feel like you're married to them. Uh, we uh, use an auction to pick the bank. We want a bank where we're dealing with the top of the bank the whole time. So one of the principles of the bank, investment bank I'm talking about has to right. be on the deal team because you've seen the bait and switch where you get the guy in the suit and then you're dealing with an intern after that. Right. Um, so you want to create an auction of banks to pick the best bank and you want somebody to manage banks. Banks are notorious for not being managed. They're just horrible because they got other deals to work with. 
And that's why we're the creators of something that never existed before. Uh, it's a distinction called exit process management. Everybody has a plan of exit, which they don't follow, but who's actually managing the process of the exit? The last deal I did had 52 people on the Zoom calls leading up to the exit, 52. There was six people that were lawyers, there was three CPAs, there was shareholders, there was vendors that were to the transaction. Well, who's managing that process? And when I say this, investment bankers are like, exit process management, that's kind of a cool thing. I never even thought about that. Because what typically happens is it's chaos, 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 chaos. And then they're like, uh, they pick a close date, which gets kicked back six times, and then you close. You asked how we get paid. We have the most unique structure in the whole industry. The Whatever the investment bank charges, so here's their fee, and whatever the lawyers charge, here's their fee. We reduce those fees dramatically, and we get paid on our fee reduction. So it ends up costing the client nothing. Wow. So, so yeah, so, so not only do they have exit process management, not only do they have the vendors working as a team, but they're out of pocket zero at close. Now they do have to pay us a retainer, but we, we refund that retainer at close. So it's a very unique model. I love that, man. Sapio, man, you're always getting me excited about all the things you're working on. So um, anyone that wants to learn more about the NCA Exit Concierge Service, like what's the best way for them to learn more? Where do they go? Just go to MutualCapitalAlliance.com. So we got that. We're going to put that in the show notes, MutualCapitalAlliance.com. Um, and then there's a way for them to connect with you guys through there, I'm assuming. Is that correct? Yeah. They could just, I think it's info at MutualCapitalAlliance.com. Or, I mean, hell, I don't know how many people are going to listen to it. rsapio at mutualcapitalalliance.com. So, listen, I really appreciate your insightful questions. It's good to talk to somebody that understands this because there's so much BS out there when it comes to exits. Oh, man. No, this is a really cool thing that you guys are creating. And I'm I'm super excited for all the the entrepreneurs being able to navigate this really important part of the entrepreneurial cycle. We've got the startup, we got the building, and then the harvest is where it's like, I don't know, to to your point, it's like these bankers, they do this hundreds of times a year, maybe. You're doing it once a lifetime, twice a lifetime if you're lucky. Um, probably once a lifetime if you're lucky. And so to have a, a trusted advisor to really guide the process. And and I love that idea of the exit process management. I, in my, my head, I'm like, X, the XPM, X, XPM. That's what you guys should call it. <laughs> um, so cool, man. Um, well, thank you so much, bro. I love having you on the show. This is like, we could do this for, I mean, literally, I'm like, oh, we can do two hours with Sappy on my sleep. Um, it's just so good to have you here, man. So much gratitude for the value you bring to the listeners. We got, you know, at this point, hundreds of thousands of listeners per month listening to the show. So you're going to add a lot of value to, to their lives. I appreciate you, my friend. Thank you so much. You're welcome. I love doing it. So, um, you guys, you heard it here. Go check out mutualcapitalalliance.com If you're exiting your company, if you just want to even learn more, we didn't even get to talk about it. Your book, who's in your room by Rick Sapio, a great book, a really, uh, Every entrepreneur needs to read that book as well. Um, so go check those things out. We'll put those in the show notes. Um, you know, look, if you love this, share this with entrepreneurs. I'm, I'm a we're, Leaders are givers. You've got to share this with people that need to hear this. And my perspective is if you know somebody that owns a business that, it, and, and I've very rarely meet people that say, I'm, I'm building a business I'm never going to sell. 
every business owner needs, needs to hear this podcast. So share this with, you, with your friends who are CEOs and entrepreneurs that need to learn what we just taught. And um, if you love the show, give us a review, give us a rating. With that said, we love you. Peace out. You are listening to The Greatness Machine, and that's a wrap for today. Listen, if you love what you heard, subscribe to the show on whatever podcast platform that you're tuning in on so that you don't miss any of our future episodes. We have tons of great people coming on, and we're, we're stoked to have you here to enjoy it with us. Leave us a review. Tell us what you love most about this particular episode. We love getting the reviews. We love to see what you guys love most. And if this particular episode you know, made you think of someone who's leveling up in their business and in their life, print screen, share it with them. Leaders are the best givers. And after all, we're all here to support and grow with each other. And in case you want to see some of the fun behind the scenes shots or some of the things that we're doing, I'm actually writing about this in my weekly newsletter. Go to www.therealdarius.com and subscribe to my newsletter. We're talking about fun things like business and life and mindfulness and cryptocurrencies and gosh, I don't even know everything and anything, but it's tons of fun stuff I write about. I try to get it out on a weekly basis. You can subscribe at www.therealdarius.com. And with that said, look, thank you guys so much. I appreciate you. I love you. Peace. We're out of here. See you guys on the next one. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.